Welcome to CTSI Science Cafe, a community engagement initiative of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. This program was recorded in front of our live community audience at Providence Baptist Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This September 2019 Science Cafe features a presentation and community conversation titled Myths and Realities of Alzheimer's Disease, a review of cause, symptoms, and treatment. Our guest presenter is Shai Wise, Community Outreach Coordinator at the Alzheimer's Association, Wisconsin Chapter. Here now is Shai Wise. Thank you for inviting me. So today we're going to take a top level look at Alzheimer's and related dementias to give a stronger understanding of what happens within them, but also how it impacts families that are living with it. We'll compare Alzheimer's and dementia, look at how Alzheimer's disease and forms of dementia affect your brain, look at some of the risk factors, the stages of the disease, and what FDA-approved treatments are out there and how they might work. We'll talk about some of the research that's happening and some of the resources available through the Alzheimer's Association and other places to help support you either in living with the diagnosis, supporting someone with the diagnosis, or simply being involved and connected to families that are living with this. It's a global crisis, it affects everywhere on the world, and it knows no distinction. You're likely hearing more about it simply because the main risk factor, does anyone know what the major risk factor is for developing Alzheimer's or dementia? Age, exactly. It's the one thing we least control and the biggest risk. So as more people are aging, we're seeing more people with Alzheimer's and related dementias. You may hear the terms Alzheimer's and dementia. Who here has heard those terms used kind of interchangeably together for the same thing? Exactly. And they often are. We will talk tonight about both Alzheimer's and dementia, and it's easier to think about as dementia is the umbrella and Alzheimer's is the handle. It's the most common form of dementia, but it falls under the umbrella of dementia. It's kind of like if you look at church. You have the church universal, and then you have the denominations, the different communities of God's church. There's the big category and the smaller ones. Can someone tell me how many Americans are currently living with Alzheimer's? I'll give you four choices. 850,000, 5.8 million, 1.2 million, or 3.4 million. Any guesses? 5.8 million. And barring any changes, any developments in treatment or prevention, this number is projected to reach 14 million by the year 2050. That's a lot of people. And currently an estimated 50 million people worldwide are expected to be impacted or live with dementia. Also with anyone with dementia comes those who care for them, right? If you have dementia, there's those, the team that comes around you to take care of you. And that position, while valuable, vital, and necessary, is rarely paid. There are currently 16.2 million Americans serving as unpaid carers for people with Alzheimer's or related dementia. 
and Alzheimer's impacts those caregivers both at home and at work. It means missing work because of the needs of those you're caring for. It means added work when you return home, and it also can negatively impact the health of caregivers because they aren't able to care for themselves even as they're caring for others. The cash value of the hours provided by caregivers to those living with Alzheimer's or dementia in the last year was about $232 billion, with a B, dollars. As you can see, this disease takes a toll on those caring for those with dementia and those living with dementia. In order to do this, we're going to look more at the impact of Alzheimer's and dementia. Who here thinks Alzheimer's is simply a normal part of the aging process? Bingo, it's not, right? Age may be the biggest risk factor, but Alzheimer's and dementia are not a normal part of how we age. Alzheimer's is more than memory loss. It's progressive, it's fatal, and it's actually killing nerve cells and tissue in the brain as it impacts people. It affects an individual's ability to remember, to think, to plan, and to function in day-to-day -day life. Does anyone know the difference between senility and Alzheimer's? She said that senility is often a milder form of dementia where things are off a little bit, but it's not diagnosable as dementia. And yes, that was often the term for when things were off. They weren't quite working right. The memory wasn't quite there the same. But dementia is often still referred to as senility or senile dementia, which reflects also a widespread myth that dementia was simply a part of the decline of aging. And as we know, and as we've learned, aging, first of all, does not have to mean decline, and dementia is not a normal part of how we age. And this is reaffirmed in the fact that people under 65 can develop Alzheimer's or dementia. In fact, there are about 200,000 Americans under the age of 65 living with what's called younger onset Alzheimer's or early onset Alzheimer's. In some cases, people develop this disease in their 40s or 50s, and that can have its own unique impacts on the lives of family that are facing it. So you may hear the words Alzheimer's and dementia used interchangeably. You may hear them used together, but it's important to remember that there are many forms of dementia Alzheimer's is the largest, and regardless of the diagnosis someone is facing, support is important. As we've mentioned earlier, there are many causes of dementia beyond Alzheimer's. However, 60 to 80% of dementia cases are caused by Alzheimer's. There are numerous types of dementia. Each one has different causes and symptoms, and there are a few classifications of types. There's Alzheimer's disease, which we talked about. There's vascular dementia, which is often what you see after a stroke. Dementia with Lewy bodies, which is named after the particular proteins in the brain that develop that cause the dementia. And frontotemporal dementia, which has its own unique challenges and symptoms. Before someone's diagnosed with dementia, has anyone heard the term mild cognitive impairment? That's kind of like a pre-dementia, not everybody with mild cognitive impairment will turn over into dementia, 
but it's kind of where there's a change in thinking, memory, and function, but it hasn't reached diagnostic criteria for dementia yet. Mild cognitive impairment causes changes. They affect day-to-day -day life, but they don't interfere with the ability to function independently. You're more likely to develop Alzheimer's or dementia out of that, but it's not always the case. Has anyone heard that you can't diagnose dementia until after death or an autopsy? Mm -hmm. And that's changed a little bit over time. There is no single test to determine if someone has dementia or Alzheimer's. So your doctor may take multiple steps to figure out what's going on. There are certain things that still can't be seen until after death, but they have enough laboratory tests and scans now that they can confirm what treatments will help you have the best quality of life and what forms or form of dementia you're most likely facing. So there's many causes of dementia, many forms of dementia, and often additional testing is required in order to determine precisely what might be going on. That's also why it's very important to have an accurate and early diagnosis. The best step towards living well with dementia or Alzheimer's is an early diagnosis to get those resources in place to help support you. The earlier you're diagnosed, the more likely it is to be accurate, the more supports are available, and the more resources you can plug into for yourself, your family, and your community. Some things to remember as far as risk factors. Everyone with a brain is at risk of potentially developing Alzheimer's or dementia. And everyone who gets older. So the two big factors are having a brain, which we all have, getting older, which we all do. So those are two of the things, and you can't control those. There are also a few other known risk factors that increase your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Genetics, family history, or age. Absolutely. The other two can impact your risk. Age is the number one risk factor. In addition to the main risk factor of aging, there are populations that have a greater risk with Alzheimer's and dementia. One is any population that doesn't have strong access to healthcare because that early diagnosis doesn't always happen. Latino and African-American populations have a higher risk of dementia or Alzheimer's being diagnosed at a point beyond the early stages. And also higher rates of vascular dementia and dementia as secondary to a stroke. We also know that women live longer than men, also are more likely to develop Alzheimer's than men, and they don't know for certain if it's connected to that living longer or if there's other factors that impact it. There's still research being done to explore exactly why that's true, but it's important to keep in mind when looking at any sort of memory concern. If you call either our chapter office or our helpline, they can give you the numbers and the research that's currently being done. We're always looking for people to help with research as well. Alzheimer's disease is basically brain failure. If you think of your heart failure, Alzheimer's disease is kind of like brain failure. It involves the failure of nerve cells in the brain. They don't know the exact cause. As we've talked about, there are risk factors that make it more likely it'll happen, with age being the greatest of those. Family history is also a known risk factor. Something to be aware of, especially if it was a parent or a sibling with Alzheimer's disease. Just to be aware of that, to bring up to your doctor, especially if there's concerns. There are two types of genes associated with Alzheimer's disease. Risk genes, those are the genes that say your risk is higher, but you're not guaranteed that you'll get the disease. 
and deterministic genes that determine that you will get the disease or it's much more likely. Those are conversations to have with your doctor because they will know your particular family history because that's something that's often taken at appointments. So the stages of Alzheimer's disease are one thing to know as we look at them are that no two people will experience it exactly the same. The stages worsen over time. It starts with often with MCI or mild cognitive impairment. And then early stage, in the early stage of Alzheimer's, people often can function in many areas the same as they have. I run our early stage support group. When I work with people that are in the early stages, they, there's a lot of engagement, a lot of awareness for many people, but not everyone, that there's something going on and a lot of ability to continue to do some day-to-day -day things. Some people will even continue to work or drive in the early stages of Alzheimer's or dementia, depending on what's recommended of their doctor. Symptoms worsen over time, that's why it's staged. People progress through the stages at different rates as their abilities change. Some people will remain in that early stage for many years. Other people progress much faster. When you get towards the middle stages of the disease, it's more challenging for conversation, for engaging socially. Typically, there's no, you're not driving anymore. You wouldn't be working anymore if you had been working when diagnosed. And there's the verbal skills start changing, the ability to find words. I, know, I don't know if anyone's ever had that moment where you have a word on the tip of your tongue, but you can't quite get it out, which is typical. At the early stage, that would happen more frequently. Middle stages, that becomes constant, where you can't recover the word once you've lost it. As you get towards the later stages, there's greater need and help with physical cares, a lot more loss of physical control, a lot more need for that 24-7 care. Somewhere in those stages, people will be placed into care facilities to get more in-depth care. When you get someone in dementia, I was a memory care chaplain before I came to work for the association, and I would often sit with people in their stories where they were, and that's really powerful. You have to be with people in their moment, where they are, when they are, because that's the reality, the present for them. And people do, often they will go backwards into different periods of their life. And so it is important to stay with them in those moments. The reorientation to the here and now is just the brain cannot do that anymore as you progress through Alzheimer's and dementia. The stages are either referred to as early, middle, and late, or sometimes mild, moderate, and severe, depending on your healthcare provider. And while symptoms will get worse over time, that progression is unique to each person. There are drugs available to help with the symptoms of Alzheimer's and dementia. They don't change the process of the disease or cure, but they do help symptoms. And for some people, they work in a way that really makes an incredible difference in quality of life. They work on some of the transmitters in the brain to basically help the brain use the parts that work to make up for the parts that don't. So they're kind of compensating. Because everyone experiences Alzheimer's and dementia differently, our brains are as unique as we are, the drugs impact people differently. And it's important to, if you are on those medications, let your doctor know of any side effects. So it is important to get checked out early and to keep talking to your doctor. If everything's fine at one checkup, just check in as you get your physicals. If you're on Medicare, you've already paid for it. So use the benefit you've paid for, because it's part of your Medicare benefit. If you're not on Medicare, you've already paid for it, in that you're paying for insurance. So either way, use it. Get checked out. If you need help finding a doctor, you can call our office and we can help connect you. You can also call your insurance plan. 
and any of the medical systems in the area would be more than happy to connect you with one of their providers. You can call our 24-7 helpline. They are good for getting connected for evaluations, asking questions, getting connected to research. They're also good if you are caregiving. They are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they're all master's level clinicians with training in dementia. And so if you need someone to talk to right in that moment, you can call our chapter. If you don't reach us right away, you can call the helpline. And they will both talk to you. And if you request it or if it rises to that level, they will also flip a follow-up back to the chapter office. And part of what I do is go through all those follow-ups every day, make sure everybody gets a phone call back that day. So the key things I would say are talk to your doctor if you have concerns, reach out for support if you have concerns or are caregiving for someone. And the research is really important. Get involved with research because the research is what will lead to an eventual cure. Are there any questions? The question was, what is meant by an early diagnosis? And is it something that you would do before symptoms show? If you start suspecting or someone in your family suspects a problem, it's good to get it checked out. And you're right, there's not one definitive test, but when you're tested for dementia or Alzheimer's, there's a series of tests that they do to check your thinking, your memory, and often scans to see what's going on and to rule out, in a physical, to rule out other health conditions that might be present. Based on that question, how do you determine what is normal and what needs further attention or assessment? It never hurts to talk to your doctor, so I, but what we generally will say, you forget a phone number briefly. You know, that happens. If you are having trouble remembering names of people you've known for a long time, that may be something worth bringing up, but it really depends. If it's at all concerning, it's good to talk to your doctor because sometimes they can reassure you and say, no, this is exactly what normally would happen in your situation. You don't need to worry about it. Or to say, you know what, let's look at this further and see what we can do to help. You said talk to your doctor because not all doctors are tuned in to And the question was, is there a universal assessment? Because not all doctors are as tuned in or as trained in looking at memory evaluations or dementia. There are some pretty solid assessments for pre-screening and for screening for dementia. And you can call, and we have some clinics through Freighter and the Medical College, through some of the other systems in town, that we can help connect either you or your doctor if your doctor needs additional information to make sure that a screening is done in an appropriate manner. Yeah? Can head trauma cause this disease? Head trauma or repeated head trauma can increase your risk for developing dementia and memory problems. It doesn't mean that you're guaranteed that if you have this, it's going to happen, but it certainly, taking good care of your heart and your brain is a good step towards taking good care of limiting those risk factors you control. Because Alzheimer's is, I mean, it is a disease of the brain. So anything impacting your brain could impact your risk factors. Yes. So the question was, could Alzheimer's come from a stroke, from the memory changes in a stroke? Alzheimer's itself is not caused by strokes, but what's called vascular dementia can be caused by strokes. And that's the memory changes and challenges that come from the loss of blood supply in a stroke. And so that is caused by strokes. So there's really no way you can really detect Alzheimer's right now. 
the question was about detecting or predicting Alzheimer's, is that right? We can't predict who will get Alzheimer's or dementia at this point. What happens in Alzheimer's in the brain is there's a series of plaques, which are abnormal clusters of protein that build up in the brain between nerve cells, and tangles that are where another protein that is in the brain gets twisted up. Scientists can't say why, and they can't predict who will have this happen, but those plaques and tangles can show that there is some sort of disease present or disease progression. But you're right, they can't predict who will get. Is that a genetic testing? There is some limited genetic testing for certain forms of Alzheimer's and dementia, and that would be a good question to have with your doctor as far as if you're in a situation where that would make sense to have. The question was if there was genetic testing. So if you're really just going for your regular checkup, there's really no way they can even detect it then, or can they? They can't look at you and say, you do or you do not have dementia or you're at higher risk. There are some screenings they can do as part of your regular physical to kind of check where your memory's at. And at the very least to get a baseline which they can compare future checkups. And if you're on Medicare, if anyone here is on Medicare, there is coverage to assist with making sure those checks are done because it's to everybody's advantage if there is a concern to get treated earlier. So the question was, is mild cognitive impairment always dementia or leading to dementia? Mild cognitive impairment is kind of like if anyone has had diabetes. There's pre-diabetes and then it can flip over into diabetes. Mild cognitive impairment is kind of like pre-dementia and often flips over into dementia, but not always. There's a significant percentage where it doesn't. If you have a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment or MCI, it's good to get support in place because it'll help you in the moment. It also helps prepare your family and yourself should things change into dementia. You're right. And often primary care doctors are not as well trained in working with dementia as other doctors, but that's a good place to start because they may not be as well trained in working with dementia or Alzheimer's, but they may know you better than other specialists, or you may need a referral depending on your plan, your health insurance. So they're a good place to start, to go in and just say, I have this concern, can we talk through it? The other places you can go, there are memory assessment clinics in the area that you can certainly work with, and we also have some listings of places that you can go and also ask for help and support. But your primary care doctor, if you have one who you have a good relationship with, can be a good place to start because they'll also know where you're comparing to. So they can at least tell you how things have seemed from visit to visit or make that referral if you need to be seen in a memory clinic. Their question was if a neurologist would be the next step. And often a neurologist would be the next step after talking to your primary care doctor because primary care doctors are often aware of what they know and aware of who knows what can help support beyond what they know. Because yeah, they're often not as well prepared in dementia because it is a very specialized area. We also have what's called our Direct Connect Physician Referral Program, which a number of doctors through Freighter, Aurora, and Ascension work with, where they can both make a referral for an, a neurologist and also a referral to our chapter office for follow-up too to help make sure that any support you need in that process you're getting. As far as we know, the medication helps with the symptoms. 
So it helps with some of the symptoms of the disease. It doesn't slow the progression, it doesn't cure it, and it doesn't stop it. But it clears up some of the symptoms to allow you to live well longer, to function better in the moment, but it won't change the progression. It's good to start them as early as possible because you get the greatest level of functioning out of them, which allows you to keep doing what you need to do to live a healthy life longer. That's actually one of our current outreach efforts. We just got a half million dollar grant, and that's part of that grant is to exactly that, is to work on how to do outreach and how to get more diversity within the studies. Because you're absolutely correct. One of the greatest challenges in research, not just for Alzheimer's and dementia, but across the board is lack of diversity in studies. When you have studies that only represent one group, what you get out of those studies, you can only prove impact on one group. And so absolutely, that is one of the things we are kind of ramping up work on is how can we diversify the study pool. One of the quickest ways, if you want to help with research or be involved in it, is you can call our helpline and there's a program called Trial Match. They will search through and match and help you connect with clinical trials. There's some in Wisconsin, there's some across the country. There's a range of types of trials that can help you connect with whatever level of involvement you're comfortable with. And we need both volunteers who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's or dementia and volunteers who are healthy, who are not facing a diagnosis. We need both at the table of research. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to CTSI Science Cafe. To learn more about CTSI Science Cafe and how you can attend, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Science Cafe is produced by Dr. Oshoya Garrison, co-produced by Brian Belmer. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Doriel Ward and Dr. Reza Shakir.